the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Timothy Zahn charms cobras and frees slaves by provoking planetary rebellion. Grumpy cat image discovered on potato chip. Fortunately, the angel of Bane covers appears and proclaims, Be of good cheer, you grumpy cat. And part 12 of the complete audiobook serialization, David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bane editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have an interview with New York Times best-selling author Timothy Zahn. Timothy is the creator of Bain's long-running Cobra series, and we'll be talking with him about his latest entry, Cobra Slave. Also coming up, we want to give you a glimpse inside publishing, so we have longtime Bain book designer Carol Russo along to explain how she creates a Bain cover. That is a little segment we call, amazingly enough, Inside Publishing unless we think of a better title. But first, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood-Corey joins me for the news. So, Cobra Slave by Timothy Zahn is new in June, as are Bain Hardcover's Burdens of the Dead by Mercedes Lackey, Eric Flint, and Dave Freer, and Eight Million Gods, a contemporary fantasy from Wynne Spencer. And don't forget on the website, we have free short stories related to those titles. We have a Dave Freer story set in the world of Burdens of the Dead, and we have a novella from Wynne Spencer set in her Elfholm series universe. Oh, excellent, yes. Uh, those are on Bane.com main page. You can get them there. Oh, plus in June we have a new contest. This one ought to be fun. I have about had my fill with talking about cats, though, with people giving me information about their cats, looking at wacky cat pictures on Facebook, and, and cats in general. Am I a curmudgeon, Laura? Yes, Tony, you are, but not just because of the cats. Yep. So tell us about the contest, will you, while I sit here and stew about cats. Well, Grumpy Cat is gracing several Bane covers now. We don't know how she got there, but your job is to provide the captions. You'll find these on the contest page. Email us your captions. The editors will pick our favorite. And the winner will get a signed copy of Cobra Slave by Tim Zahn and five free ebooks of your choice. When you say your job, you mean the listeners, I hope. Yes. Okay. Not you, Tony. You don't have to you don't have to caption Grumpy Cat. <laughs> uh actually that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh you know I'm kinda down with this grumpy cat attitude anyway. He's he's maybe my favorite of the internet cats. Maybe cats aren't all bad. They're good, bad. They're they're not evil. Oh, yes, they are. Okay, the new titles, the stories, the contest, and much, much more at Bane.com. Bane, the pounding, hammering, reverberating, rumbling heart of science fiction and fantasy. And this month only, the grumpy heart of science fiction and fantasy. Hello, Hank Davis, our editor emeritus here at Bane, is with me today. And we're happy to have Timothy Zahn with us. Hi, Timothy. Hi. Good to be here. Timothy Zahn is the creator of the Cobra and the Black Collar series for Bane Books. He is also the author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Heir to the Empire, and more than 40 science fiction novels. 
his novella Cascade Point won the Hugo Award. Now, the Cobra series is divided into three trilogies. The first of these is made up of Cobra, Cobra Strike, and Cobra Bargain. Next is the Cobra War trilogy that follows after that trilogy. That concluded with last year's entry, which was Cobra Gamble. Now, Timothy has begun a new Cobra tale. This one takes place a little bit farther along the timeline in, in the Cobra universe, and it's called Cobra Rebellion. The first novel in the Cobra Rebellion series, Cobra Slave, is just out at booksellers everywhere. Timothy, I once made the mistake of describing the Cobras as genetically enhanced in some advertising copy I wrote for Bain. And you'd better believe we had readers jumping all over us and me. And, well, they should have. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Cobras are kind of my high-tech warriors. Uh, the black collars are the uh, low-tech, not genetically, but uh, chemically enhanced warriors. Uh, the Cobras were designed uh, to be guerrilla fighters in uh, a war where the Dominion of Man had been uh, invaded. A couple of planets were under occupation. The Cobras were the plan to send uh, enhanced soldiers in who could be guerrilla warriors uh, and prepare for counter-attack, counter-invasion. Uh, what they had were weapons implanted in their bodies. There are some fingertip, uh, small fingertip lasers in the little fingers, uh, a longer and more powerful anti-armor laser running down the left calf by your out the heel, uh, a couple of sonic weapons, enhanced audio and uh, visual capabilities, uh, ceramic laminate to uh, strengthen bones, little servo motors to give muscles the extra extra ability, and um, topping it all off, a nanocomputer implanted under their brains that has pre-programmed reflexes and, and can take over the servo system to give them capabilities such as uh, flip off the ceiling, uh, various evasion maneuvers and such when an attack is coming. Uh, and so these were kind of the super warriors. Um, they worked really well. The problem was when they all came home after the war, uh, you had sort of the Vietnam vet syndrome, you know, times 100. Not that the Vietnam vets uh, were, were dangerous, but they were perceived by many people as dangerous. And uh, in this case, the soldiers coming home were also just wanting to go back into civilian life, particularly my main character, Johnny Moreau. The problem was a lot of those weapons couldn't be taken out of their bodies. And so not only were people looking a little leery at these guys coming home from war, but they like they still have their M16 and, and uh, uh, rocket grenade launcher and things like that with them. So the uh, as we did in the original Cobra, first Cobra book, the Dominion of Man solved the problem by sending them and a group of colonists past the alien Troft uh, Empire area and uh, starting new colonies where they would be, the Cobras could uh, assist in clearing land, protecting it from uh, you know, dangerous predators, uh, kind of the police and army force, and at the same time then be out of the Dominion's hair. So uh, that's where they came from, and uh, we then have gone a couple of generations into the future in that, uh, in that family saga. So it started out with sort of the Australian option of, of sending them off to uh, to start their own place. It also sort of reminds me of the of Khan on the start that Star Trek episode and et cetera when they send mm -hmm. them down to the uh, hellish planet. Now in Cobra Slave, the Dominion of Man comes back after a couple of generations. 
um, and want yep. the very place that they exiled the Cobras to to get rid of them. So you're calling this the Cobra Rebellion trilogy. I presume the Cobras are not going to be down with this new plan by the Dominion now that they've made their worlds nice. Well, it's not it's not quite that that simple. The the um, Dominion has some plans uh, for the what's called the Cobra Worlds. There are I think five of them at the time. Uh, they've got some plans. They've got some thoughts, and they're not really sharing it with. Uh, the people of Aventine and, and the Cobras and such. We're not really sure why the Dominion is there. Right. And there are they there's some mild surprise that the Cobras and the colonies have actually thrived as well as they have. They are also the Dominion Dominion was also rather uh surprised to find they had just fought back a Troth invasion, which is uh chronicled in the Cobra War trilogy. You get a hint at the end of Cobra Slave as to exactly what the Dominion's plan is. You, the reader, not the, the people actually involved. So uh, we're developing from that point. Yes, Cobra Rebellion's got a couple of possible meanings to it. Um, we'll, we'll see how it all works out, he said with a, a lopsided smile. A lot of this has to do with the uh, Kasama who is a human offshoot colony. Is that correct? And I've wondered since I read correct. the uh, the Cobra War trilogy um, how to say that word. <laughs> how do you say it? Kasama is correct. Kasama. Kasama is correct, yeah. Um, and, and what they have to do with the Cobras. They had they had helped, helped fight off the Troft Rebellion, I mean the Troft Invasion uh, before, had they not? With, with a certain reluctance, yes. Uh, the, the Kasama was a colony that had uh, gone out many years Earlier, you know, generations earlier from the Dominion of Man, there was a problem with uh, star drives occasionally going wild and just shooting somebody way, you know, the heck on further than they expected. And they'd found this, they'd wound up in this planet and started their own very closed culture. Uh, and their first contact with uh, the Cobra world uh, is in Cobra Bargain, which is the, the third book of the first. Uh, oh, no, actually, it's in Cobra Slave. I do. Backup. Uh, the Kasaman's first contact with the with the uh, Cobra Worlds is uh, in the original Cobra trilogy in Cobra Strike, and um, it was not as nice a contact as one might have hoped. And so, for the Cobra War trilogy, we have to kind of work through some anger and some uh, distrust on both sides to uh, work out the alliance somewhat grudging alliance that, that takes place. So, uh, yeah, Kasama will figure very, very prominently in the, this final, the Cobra Rebellion trilogy. Now, one of the things I love about the Cobra books is the way that your bad guys and your good guys are divided into factions. It's not like one giant nation. Uh, the Troughs have um, these domains or domains, however one correct. might say that. Um, and the Kasama Demean, and also the, the Kasama are not um, uh, this monolithic block either. Not really, and, and although the, the Cobra world obviously came from the same stock, so they're, they're not really factioned as much. They're certainly the political factions. Uh, the main ones we deal with in these books are the group that really supports the Cobras and the group that thinks they are unnecessary and doesn't necessarily like or trust or want them around. So yeah, we we uh, we have plenty of politics on all oh pretty much all the sides of, of the uh, 
the groups we're dealing with. So we have several story threads going on in Cobra Slave. Um, the Dominion is threatening Aventine, uh, one of the Cobra worlds, trying to find out maybe where Kasama is. The Dominion has contacted the, uh, the, uh, the Cobra world and started learning about some of the history, and they've shown an, uh, a special interest in Kasama, which they did not even know existed up until this point. And suddenly they're very interested in finding Kasama for reasons which will start being hinted at at the end of Cobra Slave and come to fruition much later. Well, you start with this wonderful trial scene where they're trying, is it Lorne Broom? Yes. And um, they are, they're just grilling him, and you introduce your bad guys there, and they're, they're really nicely done. Rubo Santoras, the nasty Colonel Rivaro, and the evil uh, Lidge Tulu, who has this, this horrible instrument that'll take your mind apart and probably not put it back together. But you, you portray them, they're not dummies, um, they, are, they are a formidable foe for the, uh, for the Cobras. And meanwhile, we have yeah. our, uh, our Moreau and Broom clans back of the Cobras that we've, we've seen in previous books, and they're at least trying to avoid being, being destroyed by the Dominion. Given the, Domin the Dominion some pretty advanced battle technology in those Marines that, and their combat suits, do the Cobras uh, have any hope against these guys? Oh, well... No, I guess you're right. I'll, I'll quit writing now. I guess there's no hope. <laughs> yes, there are. The, our, our cobras are. I mean, this is really hundred-year-old technology, as far as the, as far as the dominion of man is concerned. Uh, the cobra wolves have done some tweakings since they first landed, but it's essentially the same technology. And the dominion, uh, certainly the marines in their advanced combat suits, are rather, um, shall we say, uh, condescending towards them. But uh, the, our, our, the Cobras are pretty smart. They've just come through a serious battle. They've learned a little bit about how to fight. Of course, they've been fighting predators their entire existence. And they come up with a couple of tricks that um, uh, they, they, they figured out. And the Kasamans are no, no slouches at fighting back either. So I think the Marines, the Dominion Marines, for all of their, their fancy hardware, I think we're going to give them a good run for their money. Now, there's another major story in, uh, in Cobra Slave, which is that of uh, Merrick Broom. Now, he's been allowed to, he's allowed himself to be taken prisoner and taken to a slave planet. And here we meet uh, our old friend, the Troughs, uh, your alien menace and sometime ally from previous Cobra books. Um, something nasty is going on on the world of Munin, where Merrick is. Can you tell us a little bit about that without giving too much away? Well, Moonen is another breakaway or uh, lost human colony. Um, they wound up their world where the, where the uh, Kasamans found a world that was kind of on the edge of the, the trough assemblage and therefore got left alone. Moonen wound up inside one of the, uh, the trough's demeans and was reasonably soon found and taken over, and they've been human slaves for quite a while. The various troughs that, quote, own this planet and these slaves uh, are up to something, and as, as you, you mentioned, the, uh, the alien, the troughs that alien menace and sometime ally, uh, largely that's because you've got, as you mentioned, various different demeans all jockeying for position and power. It's not at all monolithic. And so we have our good guy troughs who are allies or at least neutral uh, with the towards the Cobra world. 
we have some that are antagonistic. We have some that are maybe being hired by uh, the trough domains who are border the dominion of man and are up to something else. And you have various other domains that are playing politics, playing uh, whatever games they are playing, as well as trough domains that are trying to figure out what the game players are playing. So it will get very complicated. Uh, hopefully, I will keep it clear enough that people can keep track of, of who's on whose side. If I, if I could put in a little plug. Sure. For the Cobra series, uh, back in the 80s, uh, I, I had no financial tie to Bane at the time. I was reading, uh, I believe it was Cobra Bargain on the subway, going deep into Brooklyn. And I got so involved reading it, I missed my stop and had to come back. So I think I think that's high praise. Thank you, and I'm sorry. That was Hank Davis, editor emeritus here at Bain. Timothy, let me ask you a process question about being a writer. Now that you've written, this will be book seven of uh, of Cobra uh, Universe books. What has what fascinates yep. you about this this story that you keep coming back to it? Uh, it's just the possibilities, the capabilities. I. I... In the first Cobra trilogy, I got to explore a little bit of the culture, the, the people, especially the Moreau family, now the Broom family, since uh, uh, Johnny Moreau's granddaughter, uh, Jasmine, has uh, married into the, uh, the Broom family. But they still, they still call themselves uh, Moreaus in many ways, and the Kasamans still call them Moreau, even though uh, the last name is now Broom. Uh, following this family, uh, it's just the possibilities of the the way the troughs are maneuvering around um, the the uneasy but growing relationship between Kasama and the Cobra worlds, uh, throwing the Dominion back into the mix makes things even more complicated. There's just a lot more uh, politics, military, family relationship, uh, friendship, loyalty stuff yet to be explored and. Uh, uh, I'm I just enjoying playing around in that universe. Clearly, we're setting up for a major conflict with lots of consequences for humans and cobras, and the Kasama are humans, of course, and the, the troughs, and yep. the cobras are humans, too, of course. Uh, can you give us a mm -hmm. hint of what, uh, how the shape of uh, the cobra rebellions, the, the shape it's going to take? Where are we going with uh, this trilogy? We are going to... We are going towards some kind of final confrontation, final denouement, uh, conclusion between all of these factions. I don't know if I'll go on after this. I'm going to leave it in a place where I could end if possible. However, you know, as you know, that unless you, you, the end of one book involves the heat death of the universe, there's always room for more stories. So um, I'm planning this to be the last one, at least for a while, or this series to last for, the, for a while. Um, but you never know. Never say never. Well, the book is Cobra Slave, book one in the Cobra Rebellion trilogy. Uh, Cobra Slave is available now at booksellers everywhere, so check it out. I want to thank Timothy Zahn for being with us and for giving us the lowdown on his new entry in a very entertaining series. Uh, really enjoyed following that over the years. Thank you, Timothy. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. For our first segment on Inside Publishing, we have with us Bain book designer Carol Russo. Is it Russo or Russo, Carol? Russo. Russo. Carol Russo is a longtime cover designer for Bain Books. She began working with Jim Bain 
and the long ago before time and has done hundreds of band covers since then she is a graduate of the school of visual arts in new york city so here's a question carol you get in a piece of cover art how do you decide on fonts colors word placement what goes into designing a good cover well when you first get a piece of art you look to see is what type of science fiction it is is it you know fantasy is it hard sci-fi military so the fonts that i would choose would you know vary if it's military it's going to be you know like strong if it's hard sci-fi mostly sans serif if it's fantasy i look for you know like a typefaces that will you know like be fan uh, fantasy looking uh colors will depend on the artwork i get i usually try to pick out colors that are within the art itself and you know i'm also subject to how much space they've left me um to put in a title if it's a long title and the artist has not left me a lot of space it, i can sometimes have a problem fitting it in yeah. well how do you all right let's talk about that for a moment how do you balance what the artist has given you with the need to communicate what's in the book and what the editors want etc well i try not to you know like take away from the art by putting, you know, something in that's going to fight the art. I, I look for something that's going to work with it. And, you know, like, depending on the, the title, like I said, the length of the title, how many characters in the title, how, you know, like, large I can make a, a, the um, title itself, it depends on how much art the um, how much space the artist has left me on, say, the top or on the bottom. Sometimes I add space with Photoshop. You know, I'll add some room, you know, like areas where uh, I have to extend the art because yeah. there isn't enough room. So who are who are some of the Bain authors your, whose covers you have designed? Oh, I think at one point or another I've, I've worked with almost every author. Um, Larry Niven, John Ringo, um, Steve White, Mercedes Lackey. I mean, yeah. I've worked with almost do you, everybody. You do the uh, the Honor Harrington covers usually as well. Yes, yeah. yes, I've been doing them for. We've been through a lot of transitions on those. Yes. Do you have a favorite cover from the recent crop that you've worked on that uh, you can think of? Not really. You know, each one I work on, I thought, I think, you know, gee, this one looks better than the last one. Or so each book is, each book is unique. Each book is different, and I really like working on all of them. We've been talking with Carol Russo, main book designer extraordinaire. Thank you, Carol. Oh, thank you. Bye. And now we continue with our most excellent audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free, or choose from more than 100,000 other titles, when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, the systems of the huge but loosely organized Talbot Quadrant are now allied with Honor Harrington's Star Kingdom of Manticore. 
but trouble is brewing on the border between the Talbot Quadrant and the ancient crumbling Solarian League. As the autocratic rule of the Sollies crumbles, planetary rebels on the frontiers of empire try to break the Solly hold on their systems. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michel Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, who is in command of Royal Manticoran Naval Forces in the Talbot Quadrant, sympathizes with the rebels and wants to help. But Goldpeak wants to be careful that whatever help she supplies is at a time and place of her own choosing. She is also very much aware that elements of the Mason alignment, a shadowy conspiracy to gain ultimate power, would like nothing better than to instigate war between the Sollies and Manticore. Hinka's worries about Mesa are well-founded. For instance, rebellion in the frontier swallow system is heating up, and the local governor is determined to stamp down hard to end the threat. But even in Sali-controlled space, freedom won't be denied forever. Here is part 12 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter 9 I don't like it, Rosa Schumann said, sitting well back in the outrageously comfortable throne-like chair behind her desk. She was turned half away from her single guest, looking out through her office windows over the capital city which had been named, with dubious humor, Capistrano by the colony's original settlers. I don't like it at all. Those Allenby yahoos have always been too big for their britches. I'm not going to argue with you about that, Rosa, General Felicia Caraxes replied in the sort of tone very few other people would have dared use with the president of the Swallow System Republic. Felicia Caraxes wasn't other people, though. She commanded the Swallow System Army, and since Swallow had a unified military— that meant she also commanded the security forces responsible for keeping one President Rosa Schumann seated in that throne-like chair. She also knew where most of the bodies were buried on Swallow, especially given how many of them she'd planted herself. "'I've been telling you for years that we needed to go in there and clean them out,' Caraxes continued, leaning back in her own chair and reaching into her tunic's inside pocket for one of the thin cigars she favored." She found one, extracted it, and began peeling it out of its sealed wrap as she continued. Let me make a sweep through their damned mountains with air cav and infantry. I'll sort the bastards out. Believe me, I'd love to let you, Schumann replied, although if she was going to be honest, she was a bit less confident than Caraxes about just how simple it would be to sort the bastards out. She hated the entire Allenby clan with a pure and burning intensity not even Caraxes could match, but she wasn't going to take them lightly. I'd love to let you, she continued, but Parkman and those other bastards over at Tallulah don't want us spoiling the tourist trade. Tourist trade, Caraxes snorted harshly, exhaling smoke. If I were him, I'd be a lot more worried over what Floyd and Jason might send to visit him than over getting out for a little skiing. Schumann rolled her gray eyes. Felicia might be a bit short on tact, she thought, but she did have a way of cutting to the heart of things. And if it had been possible for there to be anyone in the entire Swallow system more hated than Rosa Schumann, it would probably have been Alton Parkman, the Tallulah Corporation's system manager. Hell, Schumann hated his guts for that matter. Not that she was in much of a position to do anything about it. At the same time, 
She had to admit Parkman did have a point, of sorts at least. Swallow wasn't a particularly wealthy star system, and the Tallulah Corporation wasn't much as Solarian transstellars went. Of course, even a relatively poverty-stricken star system represented a very large amount of money, and as the system's legal president, duly appointed as vice president by her since-deceased husband Donnie and his legal successor under the Constitution he'd personally drafted, Schumann was in a position to skim off quite a bit of it. Parkman was in an even better position, since Tallulah, like quite a few of the transstellars, was prepared to wink at its managerial personnel's graft, tax evasion, and outright theft as long as they continued to show a healthy bottom line. It was Tallulah's version of an incentive program. Swallow basically represented a captive market for Tallulah, whose faithful minions Donnie and Rosa Schumann had crafted a tariff policy guaranteed to close anyone else out of the system's economy. Of course, Donnie had gotten a bit too greedy later and tried to insist on taking a bigger slice of the pie, which was how he'd come to suffer that tragic air accident, and Rosa had tearfully inherited the presidency. Aside from her husband's untimely demise, however, Rosa had little about which to complain. She knew that, and she was perfectly happy to settle for Donnie's original deal with Tallulah and OFS. A population of over four billion human beings, forbidden the opportunity to trade with anyone else, could produce a very healthy bottom line, with plenty to go around, and Swallow had done just that for Tallulah for the better part of fifty T years. But the tourist trade Parkman was worried about added another nice solid chunk of change to the Tallulah balance sheets. The Cripple Mountains were among the more spectacular mountain ranges in explored space. Brokenback Mountain, the Cripple's tallest peak, was almost 250 meters taller than Old Earth's Mount Everest, and three more of the Cripple's mountains were at least as tall as Everest. The rest of the mountain range was scaled to match, providing superlative skiing, some of the most rugged and towering and beautiful scenery in the galaxy, and opportunities for mountaineering, camping, hunting, and fishing in a genuinely unspoiled wilderness paradise. True, that same wilderness paradise could kill the unwary in a heartbeat, yet that only added to its appeal for the true aficionado, and Tallulah Travel Interstellar had a complete lock on that part of the system's economy as well. Unfortunately, the descendants of the people who'd homesteaded the Cripple Mountains were about as hard to tame as the mountains themselves, and Floyd Allenby was a case in point. "'I'm telling you, Rosa,' Caraxes said, jabbing the air with her cigar as if it were a pointer or a swagger stick. "'Sooner or later, we're going to have to go in to deal with the Allenbys, and the longer we put it off, the worse it's going to be when we do.' Let me go in quick and dirty, and we'll see how long this cripple mountain movement of theirs lasts. Schumann considered pointing out that it had been Caraxes's security people who'd killed Floyd Allenby's wife eighteen years ago. To be fair, they hadn't meant to. Sandra Allenby's air car had simply happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. In fact, Schumann had acknowledged that Sandra's death had been a terrible accident and offered a very generous financial settlement. Unfortunately, Floyd Allenby didn't seem to think a surface-to-air missile came under the heading of accidents, and he'd wanted blood, not money. A lot of those Cripple Mountains rednecks thought that way. In fact, his entire damned family seemed to agree with him. Felicia, the president said, 
We can't afford to kill off Allenby's and job lots, especially right now, for a lot of reasons. You know the way they think. If we go in after any of them, we have to go after all of them, and the effect of eliminating the biggest, most highly skilled, and most profitable group of guides would not make our Mr. Parkman very happy. And to be honest, I don't think your people would really enjoy going after them on their own ground. I don't doubt you could deal with them in the end, she continued quickly and not entirely accurately when she saw Caraxes's expression. But it wouldn't be a pleasant experience, and I'm pretty sure it would take longer than either of us would believe at this point. Even worse, they aren't exactly the only bunch up in those mountains who'd raise all kinds of hell if you went after them the way you'd have to to make them give up Florida the others. Caraxes growled something unintelligible around her cigar, eyes angry, but she couldn't very well dispute what Schumann had just said. Besides, the red-haired president continued, as near as we can tell, even the Allenbys are still split over whether or not they should be supporting Floyd. All of them hate our guts, but for right now, at least a majority of the clan doesn't seem to feel that going up against us openly is a winning strategy. Because they aren't all completely crazy after all, Caraxes grunted. If they ever come out in the open where we can get at them, we'll chop them into husky bait. I'm sure that's a factor in their thinking, Schumann agreed. The problem is that they're so damn bloody-minded. If we step on their toes hard enough, they may just decide they don't care how ugly things could get. Don't forget what old Simon was like. That reminder seemed to give even Caraxes pause, and the general nodded soberly. At least Floyd never got prolong in time, Schumann continued. He's, what, thirty, thirty-five by now? Give him a few more tea years, and he's likely to decide this liberation movement of his is a game for younger men. Looked at that way, time's on our side, wouldn't you say? Caraxes gave an unconvinced-looking nod. Schumann suspected the general was thinking about Simon Allenby, Floyd's grandfather. Old age hadn't slowed Simon up noticeably. According to tradition, and Schumann was pretty sure the tradition was correct, Simon Allenby had fought his last duel at the tender age of 90, and he'd won, handily. Hadn't even had to kill his opponent, only crippled him for life. Either way, Felicia, the president said with a shrug, I couldn't greenlight that kind of operation right now, even if I were completely convinced it was a good idea. Not with that pain-in-the-ass Luther and his other Nixon Foundation buddies here in the system. Caraxes's frown turned into an active glower. Schumann understood perfectly, since she too would have liked nothing better than to arrange a creative and hopefully fatal accident for Jerome Luther and the rest of the Nixon Foundation team investigating all those ridiculous allegations of human rights violations here in Swallow. She would have gone ahead and authorized the accident without hesitation if Parkman hadn't warned her that the Nixon Foundation's expedition was being financed by one of Tallulah's competitors in hopes of turning up something egregious enough to justify frontier security intervention. 
Tallulah was currently involved in a bidding war to buy OFS off, but until that was resolved, they had to be cautious about creating pretexts frontier security could use to mandate regime change and hand Swallow and its cash flow over to someone else. Or, even worse, turn the entire system into a direct OFS protectorate which would put the bulk of the system economy straight into Frontier Security's pocket. That's why I said I don't like it, Schumann continued. If we let ourselves be provoked into a large-scale operation in the cripples, it's bound to get out, and that busybody from Nixon will jump right onto it. I think he genuinely believes his foundation can make a difference out here, and if we give him a toehold... She let her voice trail off and shrugged, and Caraxes glowered some more. All right, the general said finally. I understand your reasoning, and I don't want to upset the apple cart any more than anyone else does, but if these rumors my people are picking up are accurate, if Allenby and the others are genuinely planning to start some kind of active guerrilla campaign... We're going to have to respond, and when we do, it's going to escalate. That's why I'm still convinced it would be better to go in fast and hard now, break as many eggs as we have to to nip this thing in the bud, instead of letting it drag on and turn into something even bigger and messier. I agree there's a risk of that happening, and I've pointed that out to Parkman. His theory is that as long as we restrict ourselves to reactions to the other side's provocations, we can pass it off as a standard law enforcement response to criminals, not a military campaign against some kind of political resistance organization. To be honest, I think what he's really hoping is that Luther and those other Nixon pests will get tired and go home before this reaches the messy stage. Once we get them out of here, I'll be a lot more willing to go ahead and turn you loose. We just need to keep a lid on things for a few more tea months, maybe a whole tea year. I'm willing to keep a lid on it, Caraxes said sardonically. The question is whether or not Allenby is. What do you reckon the odds really are, Floyd? Jason Magruder asked. Odds of what? Floyd Allenby hawked up a gobbet of phlegm and spat it into the campfire. Whether or not it's going to snow, or what the snow bear hunting's going to be like this year. How about whether or not we're going to be alive this time next year? Magruder suggested. Oh, that. Allenby shrugged and looked back down at the snowshoe he was mending. Couldn't tell you that, Jason. Looks to me like there's only one way to find out. Figured that was what you were going to say, Magruder said gloomily, and Allenby smiled down at his work. Magruder was his second cousin, with the same brown hair and brown eyes, not to mention the beak-like Allenby nose, although Magruder favored the tall and lanky side of the family, while Allen became from its compact, broad-shouldered, fireplug side. There wasn't much to choose between them in a lot of ways, but Magruder did have a positive gift for looking on the gloomy side. 
not that there was all that much of a side that wasn't gloomy at the moment. Allenby finished replacing the broken rawhide lacing, knotted it, and carefully trimmed off the excess length. He set the repaired shoe aside and leaned closer to the fire to pour a cup of coffee from the battered black pot. Then he sat back again, leaning against the flat stone face, which helped to both conceal their fire and to reflect its heat back into their tiny encampment. You know, Magruder said in a thoughtful tone, leaning back against his own bedroll and folding his arms behind his head. Our mighty liberation movement's bitten off quite a mouthful here, Floyd. Yep, Allenby agreed. Appears to me we're just a tad outnumbered, Magruder continued. Something like, what, around three or four thousand to one? About that. With air cars, recon drones, staying ships, armored personnel carriers, tri-barrels. Heck, Floyd, they've even got tanks a here. Heard that, too, Allenby agreed, sipping the scalding hot coffee. Don't think those odds might be a little steep even for an Allenby, do you? Maybe just a little. Magruder made a disgusted sound, but his lips twitched, and Allenby smiled down into his cup. Then he stopped smiling and looked back up. The truth is, Jason, he said much more seriously, this is probably a losing hand. You sure you want to sit in? You don't want to go around insulting people by asking a man a question like that. Magruder pointed out, looking up at the huge, brilliant starscape above the Cripple Mountain's thin atmosphere. I'm serious, Jason. I think we've got a chance, or I wouldn't be doing this. But having a chance isn't the same as having a good chance. And what does Vinny have to say about that? Magruder inquired politely. You know what Vinny has to say about it. Allenby's voice was suddenly harsher and much colder than it had been, and a look of apology filled Magruder's eyes as they flicked to his cousin's face. Vincent Frugoni was the brother of Sandra Frugoni Allenby, Floyd Allenby's dead wife. Like Sandra, he'd been born off-world. He'd been ten T years younger than Sandra when Dr. Frugoni had come out to swallow after their parents' deaths. Sandra had been in the Tallulah Corporation's employ at the time, but it hadn't taken her long to realize what was going on in Swallow, at which point she'd resigned and set up her own practice in the Cripples. Vincent had been delighted with her decision, and they'd both always felt comfortable around the stubborn, hard-working, bloody-minded folk of the Cripple Mountains. In fact, Vincent was even more stubborn and bloody-minded than most of Swallow's clansmen. In a lot of ways... Killing his sister had been just as big a mistake as killing Floyd Allenby's wife. Leave it to that bitch Caraxes to piss both of them off with one friggin' S.A.M., Magruder thought now. And me too come to that. Blood and family meant a lot up in the cripples. 
Sandra Allenby had been as treasured for who she was as for her medical skills, or the fact that she'd married one of their own. And Magruder was an old-fashioned clansman, just like Allenby himself. He'd have rallied around his cousin even if he'd never met Sandra, but like everyone else who'd known her, he'd loved her. It would have been personal for him anyway, but he was honest enough to admit to himself that it was even more personal than it might have been. "'What I meant, Floyd,' he said in a softer, less bantering tone, "'was whether or not Vinny thinks we can pull it off, not whether or not it's a good idea.' "'To be honest, I'm not sure whether or not he thinks we can actually bring Schumann and Caraxes down.' Allenby admitted after a moment. I think he's convinced we can at least make both of them wish they'd never been born, but actually knock off the government? He shrugged. That's a lot steeper order. All I can say is he thinks there's at least a chance, and if this contact of his comes through for us, we may have a lot better chance than I thought we did when we started. Makes a man a little nervous counting on contacts he's never met, Magruder observed. Nah. Allenby shook his head. Doesn't make a man a little nervous, Jason. Not less he's the kind of idiot couldn't count to eleven without taking his shoes off anyway. Magruder chuckled, although in his saner moments he knew Allenby was right about that. At the moment, their Cripple Mountain movement consisted of a grand and glorious total of just under 400 volunteers. Given the imbalance between the imported equipment of Caraxes's military and the civilian weaponry available to them, angering even that many enough to step forward had been a monumental achievement on the Schumann administration's part. And virtually all of those 400 were Cripple Mountain's clansmen and women, which meant that even family members unwilling to take up arms themselves would greet any outside pursuers or investigators with hostile, willful ignorance of the guerrillas' whereabouts. Some of the CMM's members wanted to open a large-scale campaign of attacks on the Tallulah Corporation's infrastructure, but for the moment, Allenby was restricting their operations to keeping their mountainous stronghold free of the system's security forces. There had been perhaps a dozen serious clashes between his people and Caraxes over the last local year or so, and their frequency seemed to be accelerating, yet they were still the exception, not the rule. In fact, most of them had been the result of accidental collisions between the two sides, not something either of them had planned. Things had begun to accelerate in other ways, though, especially since First Sergeant Vincent Frugoni, Solarian Marine Corps, retired, had returned to Swallow. Frugoni shared his dead sister's blonde hair and blue eyes, and his face, while undeniably masculine, was an almost painful reminder of Sandra. He was also, as his sister had been, a prolonged recipient, which neither Allenby nor Magruder was. Twenty years older than either of them, he looked more like someone's adolescent brother than the tough, decidedly nasty character he was, and he kept a well-honed, artfully innocent expression ready for instant use at need. He'd also spent 27 T years in the Solarian Marines, rising to the second-highest non-commissioned rank available, and under his tutelage, the 400 members of the CMM had attained a level of training and tactical sophistication 
light years ahead of the majority of Felicia Caraxes's so-called soldiers. That wasn't enough to offset the imbalance in the equipment and technical capabilities available to the two sides, of course. Although... Tell me, Floyd, Magruder said finally, his expression unwantedly sober. You know I'm with you all the way, however it works out. Bastards have got it coming, and I'm ready to give it to them, however it comes out at the finish line. But do you really think these people, these mantis, are ready to help out? I don't know. Not really, Allenby admitted, returning honesty for honesty. If half the stuff we're hearing is true... They're going to need every edge they can get, though. Makes sense to me they'd want to distract the Solly's attention. And you know as well as I do how it really works out here. Frontier Security's not back in Tallulah just because of that asshole Parkman's beautiful eyes. They're getting a cut from every credit Tallulah rakes off from Swallow. And if the League's got a real war on its hands for the first time in its life, it's going to need all the cash it can squeeze out of the protectorates and us. So if the Mantis can make it hard for them to do that, it's got to help Manticore, right? Even I can get that far, Magruder said dryly. What bothers me is whether or not they're going to give a fart in a windstorm what finally happens to us. Fair enough. Allenby nodded. And while I'm being fair, why should they give a fart in a windstorm? They don't know us, and they sure as hell don't owe us anything. But the truth is, it's not going to take a lot of effort on their part to provide us with the guns and the support weapons we'd need to take Caraxes on. It's not like we're going to be some kind of long-term heavy burden on them. In fact, this is about the cheapest way they can get into the Solly's hen house when you come down to it. And if they promise to help us and then don't come through, if they don't provide what they've agreed to and just leave us hanging, it's going to get out. I'm thinking anyone ballsy enough to take on the league isn't going to want the rest of the galaxy to think they just use up allies and throw them away. Might make sense to them in the short term, but in the long term, it'd do them a lot of damage with all the independent star systems. And if they're going to survive facing up to the league, they can't afford to piss off the independents, Jason. They're going to need access to markets out here to replace the ones they're going to lose in the league, and they're going to need allies, not just trading partners. Somehow, I don't think someone who goes around screwing people over and then throwing them to the ogre wolves is going to find a lot of people willing to stick their necks out for them against something like the league. Magruder's eyebrows rose. Sometimes, listening to his cousin speak, Allenby's rustic mountain accent could fool even him into forgetting the acuity of the brain behind those brown eyes. But then Floyd would come up with a piece of analysis like that and remind him. 
I'm not saying the Mantis are going to back us out of the pure goodness of their hearts any more than I think OFS is back in Tallulah because they love Parkman so much. Allenby continued, I'm just saying, we both have reasons to be pissed off as hell at Frontier Security, and if it makes sense to the Mantis to go after Schumann and Caraxes and Parkman here in Swallow, it makes sense to me to let them help us do it. Put that way, makes sense to me, too, Magruder admitted after a moment. He considered for several more seconds what his cousin had said. Then he cocked his head. So when do we expect to hear back from Vinny? he asked. Sometime in the next week or so. Allenby refilled his coffee cup again. I don't think Caraxes even realizes Vinny's back on planet, but the only place he could make contact is in Capistrano, so we're not going to know how it went until he's had time to get back here without attracting anyone's attention. So, he shrugged, about a week or so. And just how are the Mantis planning on getting weapon shipments through to us when Tallulah controls all the traffic into and out of Swallow? Magruder sounded as much honestly curious as skeptical, and Allenby snorted a laugh. Damned if I know, he admitted cheerfully. That's up to Vinny and this Manty super secret agent he's hooked up with. He shrugged. If Mr. Firebrand can come up with a way to get the guns to us, though, I'm pretty sure we'll be able to figure out what to do with them after he does. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 12, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, Hank Davis, and March to the Stars podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Technologically enhanced leaps of gratitude to Cobra Slave author Timothy Zahn and to Bain Books cover designer extraordinaire Carol Russo. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.